Did you guys uh, enjoy having Jim here last weekend? Uh, what a, a dear brother and um, dear sister. And I uh, trust that that was encouraging and, and um, helpful to you. I'd encourage you as well. Um, he mentioned it, but just to reiterate, uh, he has a website. It's IBCD, no relation to the root beer company, IBCD.org. Um, and he has probably hundreds of audio messages and articles available there on all sorts of topics. Um, if you're familiar with Elise Fitzpatrick, uh, the author, uh, she counsels in IBCD at the same ministry there. Uh, if you know who Laura Hendrickson is, uh, she's also related to their ministry. Um, so lots of resources there. And as well, because of the ice and snow from that, that week, um, a lot of the books that we ordered didn't arrive till this week. Uh, so we have a really good deal uh, today. Um, seriously, if you just go in the bookstore um, under that first shelf there, you'll see a whole bunch of titles there. And um, Jim very graciously offered us his author's discount, which is 50% off, very significant. Um, and we're selling all those at cost. So if you were interested in one of those resources and you went there and didn't find it, it's probably available now. And uh, we can help you out there if, if that would be helpful to you. Okay, let's, uh, let's jump back into the book of Job. And uh, again, you have the very optimistic outline in front of you here, but uh, this is a survey. We're not trying to look at everything today, but we're going to jump back in and hopefully conclude our discussion about Satan. Uh, I'm doing one of those theological jog through the woods here uh, with Satan because uh, he is, um, it's just one of those things, I know I'm repeating myself here, but Satan is one of those characters in Scripture that it seems like uh, most Christians are prone to have some sort of imbalance with. We either, we either uh, never talk about him and we ignore him when the Scripture uh, warns us a number of times that we better think about him, we better consider him because he is uh, the Lord's enemy, he is our enemy, and um, his agenda is real. Uh, and then, of course, there's also the other extreme, and that is where we overemphasize Satan. We give him more power than he really has. We, we see him behind every tree and every bush and every problem and every situation. Uh, I, I remember years ago, um, had a, uh, actually, a, a counselee here, and um, having trouble with uh, her small children. And she had discovered some book or some friend or some resource and never was able to get to the bottom of it. And uh, her solution to basic disobedience issues in her home was she would go in and she would walk, as the kids were asleep, she would walk the perimeter of the room praying these banishing Satan prayers uh, because her theology, bad theology, but her theology was the source of her, the problem she was having with her children was some sort of satanic attack. Uh, and that was it. it was, and, and we're not saying Satan can't and doesn't do that. What we're saying is that's giving him way more credit than he deserves. Um, there, there's there's a, a much broader perspective that Scripture gives. So, so that's what we want to do. We kind of come up with a, a well-rounded biblical perspective of Satan. So let's just review where we've been since it's been a couple of weeks, okay? Let's do that. Um, Satan in, in Job, you'll notice um, that in the New American Standard, when we get to verse 6, now there was a day when the sons of God came 
to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came amongst them. If you look in the column, uh, the column next to the text in your Bible, or sometimes it's in a footnote at the bottom, uh, you'll see in the margin there it says, the adversary, which is a literal translation of what the, um, the English translators put as Satan. Uh, the Hebrew text actually says, uh, ha-satan, the Satan, the, the adversary. You know, Satan, uh, Satan at this point is not a proper noun. It's, it's not a name. It's a title. It's the adversary. And, and we don't know a whole lot about him at this point. Uh, but as we unfold Scripture, we learn more about him. From this text, we see uh, the sons of God are angels, according to chapter 38, verse 7. Uh, this adversary has been roaming about on the earth, and we can cross-reference that to 1 Peter 5, 8, which tells us our adversary, the devil, roars, uh, uh, roams around uh, in, uh, like a roaming... What is it? He ro- How's it go? He roams around like a roaring lion. That's what I thought. I thought it was roaming and roaring, but... Uh, didn't sound right. Um, yeah, so, so that we see the comparison there. Um, verse 4, uh, uh, God draws the adversary's attention to Job. And uh, as we unfold this next week, as, as, we, as we really try to get a handle on what this chapter is about next week, one of the things we're going to keep coming back to is this is all God's idea. This is all God's doing. Uh, I had someone who... Uh, not, doesn't attend our church. Um, actually, a family member listened to uh, my sermon on Job from a month ago or so, and and uh, the family member said, you know, "Oh, that was very helpful, all that, but but I just can't see God doing all that." And, and that's that's kind of how we feel sometimes. It's like, well, you know, this is Satan and Job, and they're kind of, but God starts this whole thing, and, and that's one of the things that we need great courage to hear. The message of Job is, is God's sovereignty and his involvement in the lives of people, even as it relates to affliction and suffering. We'll get to that next week. Uh, the adversary challenges God. Does, God. does Job serve God for nothing? Uh, God, if you hadn't made his life so good, if you hadn't given him these wonderful kids and, and uh, this wonderful farm with all these animals and, and all this uh, land and privilege and prosperity... That's the only reason Job worships you. And if you take all that away, Satan challenges God, Job will in fact curse you. His worship was only based on the benefits that God had given him. That, that was uh, Satan's essential uh, premise. And uh, as we see, as we unfold these couple of chapters, uh, God takes the challenge and uses Job to really display his glory in the face of Satan and showing him to be a liar and to be totally wrong in his assessment. The adversary has power, though it must be permitted by God. We saw that last time, that Satan has to get uh, God's permission the two times he uh, comes to wreak havoc in Job's life. And we look, there are really three Areas that we see Satan uh, has power over as it was given over by God. Power to use and influence people. Power to use the weather. And power to use sickness and disease. Okay, that, that's, pretty, that's pretty eye-opening if you think about it. Um, we know from Scripture that God is behind... Or God, God is behind. Uh, that Satan is behind some of the things that are involved in the world. 
that Satan is behind some world leaders, that Satan is involved in influencing people. That's, that's a very real biblical perspective. We also know that he can use the weather. Remember the fire from heaven, the wind that knocked the house down that killed the children, the lightning from heaven that set the crops on fire and killed all his animals? Um, and, and you'll always hear it. Anytime there's a natural disaster, there'll be some... Uh, pseudo-evangelical out there running his mouth off saying, well, God had nothing to do with this thing and God's not over this and um, we got to be careful in our theology. Uh, Satan does have power to use the weather. And then finally, he has power to use sickness and disease. Now, let me ask you a question. Is every time a person does something sinful, is every time there's a natural disaster, every time there's sickness and disease, does that mean Satan did it? No. In fact, um, it's, it's interesting. I haven't actually done this comprehensively. I'd like to. I've done a preliminary survey of all the times in Scripture somebody is sick or dying and relate that to the activity of Satan. How many times does that happen? A very, very minuscule percentage. Okay? It doesn't mean it doesn't happen. It just means the time where Scripture says, hey, this is what's going on, very, very, almost rare, um, where the vast majority of time, we, we would, that's just a, a natural consequence of the fall, right? People get sick. People die. Uh, my family has proved uh, this fall that what children do best is get sick, right? That's what they do. Grab this from, uh, from Paul Enns, uh, Terry's dad, his book, The Moody Handbook of Theology. It's in your outline there. It's a very helpful table. One of the reasons, how many of you have The Moody Handbook of Theology, Dr. Enns' book? One of the reasons that all of you need this book, okay? Terry didn't tell me to say his doctor didn't tell me. I just, you need this book. It has charts in it, okay? Now, how many of you think I'm a chart guy? See, you know me. Uh, charts are, char- okay, say it with me. Charts are our friends, okay? All right. Yeah, charts. And uh, I, I remember, yeah. What's that? A, a needed crutch, a good crutch, a glorious crutch. And, um, uh, but maybe a crutch indeed, yeah. Um, I remember in seminary, we, we use these charts all the time in our theology classes because they're so helpful. You can look at the chart if you're a chart person. And... <laughs> It's all there. It's right there. Glorious in its chart. So hopefully that will be helpful to you. These are some names of Satan, the meaning, and then the reference where they get them. And one of the things you can do is study the names of Satan to get an idea of what this guy is like and what he does. So that's there for you to study on your own time. Okay, Where did Satan come from? And this is kind of where we left off last time. He is most likely an angel. Angels were created as part of the heavens Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That would have included most likely the host of heaven. You say, well, how do we know that? Because in Psalm 148, the psalmist talks about God laying the foundations of the earth. And who's there to praise him as he does that? The angels are. So the angels preceded um, that particular work in creation. And uh, so probably Genesis 1.1, when it says the heavens were created, that was... That was where the, the angels came from. And then we see that as well in Job 38, the reference to the sons of God there. Angels are ministering spirits who can sometimes take on bodily form. Hebrews calls them spirits. Um, and and, and this, this is another thing we've got to kind of think about. There are 
millions of millions of angels. Revelation calls them myriads upon myriads. They didn't have the little eight sitting on the side to say infinite, right? Um, but they called it myriads of myriads. There are countless angels. Most of them we never see. Occasionally in Scripture we see angels taking on bodily form. In fact, I was just reading this to my kids last night in Sodom and Gomorrah where, where the uh, angels come to visit Sodom and Lot takes them into his house. You guys remember the story? And those angels took on bodily form. They looked just like normal men. There are countless numbers of angels. Now, now here's where it gets a little sticky. Satan apparently led a revolt in heaven against God. God judged him and one-third of the angels, sending them out of the heaven out of heaven to the earth. And we looked at Revelation 12 last time, and that's where we concluded. And your homework assignment from two weeks ago, yes, I didn't forget, was to look at Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. Uh, would you please turn to Isaiah 14? Uh, there are two places in Scripture, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, that some scholars believe describe the fall of Satan. Okay? Now, let's, uh, let's be upfront, let's put everything on the table and be honest uh, with what's really going on. There are good, evangelical, solid Bible scholars that we would all buy their books and read their, listen to their tapes and all that, who conclude that Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 do indeed describe the fall of Satan. Okay? There are also good, godly scholars, guys that we would be right there with in terms of theology, guys we would respect who say that uh, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 do not describe the fall of Satan. Part of the problem with these texts, and we're going we're gonna to just kind of parachute in here and look at them, is that both of them, in the immediate context, are describing a prophetic judgment on a human king. Okay, So if you read the context, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 are describing a particular judgment on a human king. Okay, The problem is, as you read... The judgment, at some point, the description of the king seems to transcend what a human being could do. Okay, And you'll see what I mean here in a moment. Which is why some scholars conclude, and, and Rich knows what I'm talking about, there's a type of shot, and I don't even know what it's called, I didn't go to film school, but there's a shot where, well, let's say the camera zoomed in on Gary. Okay, Let's say I'm right here. And as the camera zoomed in on Gary, let's say there's some things going on, the music kicks in, and the camera operator will zoom, will, will focus past Gary to Terry sitting behind him. What's that called? Rack focus. Rack focus. Thank you. Okay, it's a rack focus. You guys know this because you've seen it in movies, right? Someone in the foreground's in focus, and then oftentimes the camera will zoom past, or not zoom, will focus past, you'll see someone in the background. And that's what a lot of scholars think is going on in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. The, the initial focus is on the human king. And as you read, the human king gets blurred and goes out of focus. And someone behind him comes into place. And those scholars would say that that is Satan. 
Okay. Interestingly enough, I don't think I knew this until I spent some time studying this these past few weeks. Most of the reformers, the, you know, the John Calvin and Martin Luther and, and Zwing, you know, those guys that, that we love, you know, did not believe these described Satan, which really surprised me. I thought, oh, that's kind of weird. But anyway, um, that doesn't mean it's right or wrong. It's just, just an interesting fact as I was studying. Just the human kings. So let's look at um, Isaiah 14, verse... Let's start at verse 9, okay? Uh, and if, Actually, if we back up all the way to the beginning of the chapter, this is a judgment on a Babylonian king. Do you see that there? Isaiah is writing at a time where Babylon uh, has taken the kingdom of Judah, taken them back to Babylon. Isaiah is prophesying to the nation of um, Judah primarily. And uh, this is a judgment on the Babylonian king, on a Babylonian king. We don't know which one. Look at verse 9. We'll pick it up there. A shield from beneath, it's, uh, from beneath is excited over you to meet you when you come. Okay, death, the grave, is excited to meet you, O Babylonian king. Okay? It arouses for you the spirits of the dead, all the leaders of the king. It raises all the kings of the nations from their thrones. They will all respond and say to you, even you have been made weak as we. So you see this king being judged, being humbled in the place of, in, in the face of all the people. You have become like us. Your pomp and the music of your harps have been brought down to Sheol. Maggots are spread out as your bed beneath you, and worms are your covering. Judgment is very graphic sometimes. This king is going to die, and the maggots and worms are going to infest his grave, is what he's saying. Verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, O sun of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Nevertheless... You will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. Did you see the camera change focus a little bit there? Now, have there been human kings that thought they were better than God? Oh, yeah. We got a few that are alive and well today, don't we? Um, so, so when he says there, you know, I will ascend to heaven, I will raise my throne above God, that's not necessarily something that we say, well, you know, no king has ever said that. No king has ever done that, especially in this day. Um, have you read Daniel lately? I mean, I know Gary went through it last year. Um, king after king, I mean, even after they've been humbled, they're right there rising back up saying, I'm going to be God. But some scholars have seen this as going too far, that the description here describes something that, it, that is so prideful, so arrogant, so lofty, and so directly opposed to God that this must go beyond this human king of Babylon. And interestingly, if you look back at verse 12, do you see the little phrase there, uh, star of the morning? Do you see that there? Star of the morning. Um, Hillel and uh, the... Um, guy named Jerome in the what, 6th century, 7th century, 
uh, translated the scripture into Latin. And when he translated this verse into Latin, he translated uh, star of the morning into the term Lucifer. Okay? The Latin name, the Latin word for star of the morning. You say, Lucifer, I thought that was a title for Satan. Well, we made it that. We made it that. We pulled that out of the Latin Bible and said, we're going to use this as another title for Satan. But that actually comes from the Latin translation called the Vulgate, translation of the Hebrew word halal, star of the morning. That's why it's not in the chart, but star of the morning. I don't, is star of the morning in the chart? I think it is. Um, it may have been that, that Dr. Enns just picked the specific references to Satan where we knew for sure, not the ones that were questionable. Okay? Is it in there? Okay. So he was just picking the... Because there's some debate on this, he probably chose to leave it out. Maybe when you talk to him next Saturday, Terry, you can ask him. How's that? Okay. Um, okay, but in, in case you're wondering, that's where Lucifer comes from. It, it's the Latin translation of Hillel. As, uh, it's translated in English as Star of the Morning. Okay? So that's, that's one text here. And you can see, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Um, that's pretty arrogant. And, uh, and certainly would fit with what we know, what we know of Satan's character. Uh, more than anything else, he is prideful. When he came to Adam and Eve and he said, you know what? Did, did God really say that you're not supposed to eat? The heart of that, the, the, the background of that, what was driving that was pride that says it's okay to stand in judgment of God. That's okay. And that's what he's saying here. He says, I, I want to stand in judgment of God. I want to be over God. I want my throne to be over his throne. Flip over to Ezekiel 28. Let's turn to the right uh, a few prophets. And look at Ezekiel 28. And as you're doing this, I'd encourage you to form your own opinion on this. Study those texts. Study them in context. Uh, is the language too much for a human king? Because, you know, you've got a prophet who's writing poetry about some really arrogant kings. Okay? You put all that together and you might conclude, you know what? It's over the top, but that's part of the nature of prophecy. Um, others may conclude that, no, it, it's too much. There must be someone else that the camera has focused past, and uh, that person most likely would be Satan. Look at Ezekiel 28. This, in this prophecy, um, Ezekiel is prophesying against the ruler of Tyre. Do you remember Tyre? It's a, it's a city right on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. There was a great prophecy given against Tyre. Remember, that was the one where um, the city was destroyed, and... Um, as they came in to destroy the city, uh, actually this was um, Alexander the Great, came in to destroy the city and they put up such, such a massive fight that they had time to move out to an island out on the Mediterranean Sea so that by the time Alexander the Great got in to the city of Tyre, no one was there. They had moved out to the, sea, to the island. And so what, Nebuchadnezzar, or Nebuchadnezzar, what Alexander the Great did is he, he took his troops, they scraped the city 
and they threw all the junk into the ocean and made a bridge out to the eye and then went out and destroyed them. But there's a prophecy in Scripture about the rebuilding of Tyre, and the prophecy goes something like this. Tyre will never be rebuilt. Uh, and to this day, they don't know the location of the city. It has not rebuilt because Alexander the Great did such a great job, job clearing out the city. They don't know where the location is of the original city. So this is a prophecy against the ruler of Tyre, who was no friend of the God of Scripture. And again, we're going to see that same sort of focusing of the camera. It starts off on a human king and then seems to go past... Oops. Uh, seems to go past that. Um, where should we pick this up at? Let's just go back to 28, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, say to the leader of Tyre, Thus says the Lord God, Because your heart is lifted up, and you have said, I am a God. I sit in the seat of gods, in the heart of the seas. Yet you are a man and not God. Although you make your heart like the heart of God, behold, you are wiser than Daniel. There is no secret that is a match for you. By your wisdom and understanding, you have acquired riches for yourself. You have acquired gold and silver for your treasuries. By your great wisdom, by your trade, you have increased your riches. And your heart, and your heart is lifted up because of your riches. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have made your heart like the heart of God, therefore, behold, I will bring strangers upon you the most ruthless of the nations, and they will draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They will bring you down to the pit and you will die the death of those that are slain in the heart of the seas. Will you still say, I am God, in the presence of your slayer, although you are a man and not God, in the hands of those who wound you? You will die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of strangers, for I have spoken, declares the God, declares the Lord God. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, take up lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, and the diamond, the, the how do you say that, beryl, beryl? The onyx and the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise and the emerald and the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you on the day that you were created. They were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers. And I placed you there. And you were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until... Unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence, and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor, and I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you by the multitude of your iniquities in the unrighteousness of your trade. You profaned your sanctuaries. Therefore, I have brought fire from the midst of you. It has consumed you. And I have turned you to the ashes on the earth in the eyes of all who see you. Now, let me ask you a question. Is that describing a human king? 
Do you read that? He was in Eden. He was perfect. He was called an anointed cherub, which would be uh, one of the types of angels. He was on the mountain of God. There's a transition there, folks. There's a transition where, at least in my opinion, the camera has zoomed past the king of Tyre and is describing someone who clearly is not human. But I'll leave you to decide what you think. Okay. Uh, my personal uh, my personal opinion is that Isaiah 14 is probably not about Satan. Ezekiel 28 probably is. There you go. Um, I think the language in Ezekiel 28 goes too far. Okay. Now, if this is describing Satan, he's in Eden. That fits, right? He was the anointed cherub that covers. He's an angel. That fits. He was cast down from Satan because of uh, his desire to be like God. That fits. His heart was lifted up because of his beauty. That's interesting. Pride arose from his own beauty. And he desired the place and position of God. So if that's true, that gives us a little bit of wisdom and insight about where Satan came from, how he fell. Um, If we follow the theory of most evangelical scholars, then Satan most likely fell sometime after day six of creation and before the events of Genesis 3, verses 1 and following. Why do we put that there? Why does it have to be after day six but before chapter 3, verse 1? That's right. Everything was good. And assuming he was talking about the whole host, which goes back to in the beginning he created the heavens and the earth, and then he declares everything good. It makes sense. Satan, Satan can't be in existence yet in terms of his fall when God declares at the end of day six that everything is very good. But obviously he shows up in chapter 3, verse 1, clearly, clearly opposed to God. Rich, do you have a question? Uh, I'm just going to go back real quick. Yeah. What we were Hmm. That they carry out his very end wishes. They he, he, they reflect Satan, hmm. uh, and um, so whether or not we turn this to Satan or not, right. we're seeing the characteristics of Satan right there. Yeah, that's true. And that's true. In the same way, we, as the light of Christ, are reflecting hmm. uh, the glory of God. That's right. So I mean, that's all throughout Scripture. Yeah, that's true. Very good. Yeah, Bill. Yeah, and like I said, you know, you, you can really make a case. I mean, when, when guys of, of Luther and Calvin and when guys like that stand up and say, hey, you know, here's, I mean, uh, that's, that's a lot of weight. I mean, you, you, you can understand this in a way that, um, you know, is descriptive of, of human wicked hearts, and that's okay. Um, e- either way, I, I think what you're saying is true. All right, so there, there you have it, okay? Um, as best as we can tell, that's where Satan came from. Now, more importantly, where Scripture is much more clear, and, and I, would, I would suggest to you, because Scripture puts the emphasis here, this is what we should emphasize also, is what Satan does and why he does it. 
Okay, this is going to be a survey. We're not going to look at every text. We may we may stop and uh, smell the roses every now and then, but uh, let's just uh, jump in here. I want to give you. I think it's like four or five headings on what Satan does, and several subpoints underneath. Okay, first thing I want you to see is that Satan aggressively opposes God. Okay, let's in shotgun format. He led the revolt in heaven. We saw that in Revelation twelve three. Uh, his tail swept a third of the stars out of heaven. God cast him to the earth. He slanders God's word. Genesis 3.1. Did God really say you may not eat from any tree in the garden? Well, no, 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 no. God said we can eat from any tree in the garden we want, but the tree that's in the middle of the garden, we, we can't eat it or even touch it lest we die. And Satan said, you surely... It, there's a way... I wish I could show you. There's a way in Hebrew of making something ridiculously emphatic. This will never, ever, ever happen. And that's what he does. This is absolutely not true. He takes his finger and points it in the face of God and says he's a liar. His word is not true. That's what he does. He slanders God's word. He he calls God a liar. He calls into question. And you know, that, that whole, that whole uh, occasion in Genesis 3 was about... Satan repainting the character of God. You understand that? You can't trust him. He's not good. He's holding back from you. His word isn't reliable. He's out to get you. You need to evaluate him and decide what you want to do for yourself. And by the time Satan is done, the caricature that Satan has drawn of God looks nothing like the God of Scripture. He's a slanderer of the word of God. He tempts Christ. We'll look at this a little bit later. But um, Satan comes in Matthew, Matthew chapter 4 when Jesus has been fasting. Uh, he was at a very weak point and he comes and he tempts Jesus. You talk about arrogance. You're going to go tempt the God of the universe? And think about that just in terms of, I mean, I mean we, we all know prideful people and, and we all are prideful people, right? Um. To get to a place where you say, I can make God sin. Pride's blinding, pride's, pride's destructive, that's, that's pretty good. That's, so he tempts Christ. Uh, he's a counterfeit angel. I want you to see this. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I know you're probably familiar with this verse, but let's, let's think about it in the context of our study here. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Second Corinthians chapter 11 and verse uh, 13. Uh, you know, and you know the context of, of Second Corinthians. Paul is, is really defending his ministry amidst the false teachers in the church at Corinth. Um, there are some guys running around uh, teaching false doctrine, declaring themselves to be real apostles. They were saying Paul was not a real apostle. You remember all that. So in the middle, middle of all that, he, he's talking about these false teachers. Verse 12, But what I'm, I am doing, I will continue to do, that I may cut off opportunity for those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which we, they are boasting. And by that, what he means is he's trying to show the, the false apostles to be false apostles. For such men 
are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Um, When Satan shows up in humanity, he doesn't look like the kids that show up at your door at Halloween in a red costume with a pitchfork and horns on his head. He looks attractive. He looks appealing. He looks trustworthy. He looks like a very messenger of God himself. Verse 15, Therefore it's not surprising if his servants disguise themselves as servants of righteousness whose ends shall be according to their deeds. Let me ask you a question. What two... Well, we will only do that. What religions have started because an angel came to somebody? Mormonism, the angel Morani. Right? That's where we get the name Mormon, the angel Morani who supposedly appeared to Joseph, Joseph Smith in upstate New York in the early 19th century, told him to go out and dig up some gold plates. He did. He went, went behind the curtain, translated them. That's where they get the Book of Mormon. About the angel Morani. What's that? Islam. Islam. Really? What, now, tell me about Islam. That's right, to Muhammad. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that? Claimed to be the angel Gabriel. Okay. Islam is the fastest growing religion in the world. It's probably the fastest growing religion in the United States. I think it's the third largest religion in the world by followers. How did it start? According to this verse, how did it start? an angel that appeared to be an angel of light came and started it. Okay. Um, he disguises himself as an angel of light. He looks like a messenger of God himself. But he's a counterfeit angel. He energizes the Antichrist. We see in Second Thessalonians where Paul diverts and talks about some end time stuff. Satan is the one who energizes the Antichrist, that great end time ruler who arises uh, shortly before um, what we would call the beginning of uh, eschatology there at the end. Okay? What else? He deceives and attacks Israel. We saw that last time in Revelation 12. The dragon is there ready to um, destroy the child that's born from Israel, the, the, the Messiah. We see that in the book of Daniel. And he introduced sin into the world. Okay, First John 3, 8. Just to reference that for you. You know, I was amazed. Um, you know the book that talks about Satan the most? Maybe not the, I don't know, statistically like the most, but I just have struck in such a little book how much it talks about the devil. First John. You ever notice that? Every, every corner, he's talking about Satan. 1 John 3, 8. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. He started it, is what John is saying. It started with him. And the Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Okay? And he introduced 
pride. First Timothy 3.6 talks about the qualifications for elder. And it says, uh, not a new convert, not a new Christian should be an elder, lest he become conceited, prideful, and incur the condemnation of the devil. That's right. You remember that? And Paul, in writing to Timothy, connects Satan's condemnation to the sin of pride in that text. Okay, we're just surveying, right? We're not stopping too often. We're just going to keep on moving here. He aggressively opposes the two. I'm just going to throw these up here for you, okay? Um, If it's true, the devil hates it. Whoops, back up there. He blinds men's minds. This is a key text. Let's look at it together. 2 Corinthians 4. We're not going to finish today. Shocking, huh? You're used to disappointment. This is, uh, man, I, uh, to survey a text like this seems almost wrong, but we're, we're going to do it. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. <laughs> Satanic blindness is part of the problem of unbelief. See, well, how does that work? If it's satanic blindness and they can't do anything about it, but but they're accountable to it. Yeah, I know, I know. Um, part of unbelief is due to satanic blindness. Now, in the same breath, we're going to say, and the gospel is powerful enough to make the blind to see, right? God is able to open blind eyes. In fact, that's where the text goes, right? But he blinds men. You ever had people, you say, they just don't get it. They just don't understand. They, I, the gospel, I give it to them over and over. They just don't see it. They can't see it. They're blind. And until God does a work in their heart, making the blind to see, they're blind. This is interesting. He snatches away the seed of the word. Remember the parable of the soils, right? The sower and the soils. And, and the first seed, he throws it out. And the birds come and take it away. Remember that? And remember the interpretation later on? The, the seed that fell uh, on the ground, the birds came. That's when the evil one, Jesus says, comes and snatches away the word so it cannot implant in the heart of people and produce fruit. He's in the business of snatching away the word. He introduces deceitful doctrines. First Timothy 4.1 talks about in the, the last days... Uh, what's going to to go on in in First Timothy? And um, uh, I'm sorry, in the last days that, that people are going to fall away from the faith. The Spirit explicitly says, chapter four, verse one, that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. You know. Again, n- not not wanting to fall into the error of seeing Satan behind every activity. I think we can safely conclude that most, if not all, the false belief systems in the world are satanic in origin. Um, 
we need to talk about this sometime, but the way Satan works is by causing us, tempting us, working in us to believe things that aren't true. Which is usually, which usually in the church looks like this. 90, 90% truth, 10% error. Right? If it's not 100% truth, it's error, right? And I don't know about you, but I shouldn't do this. I do this. I go to the Christian bookstore and I look at the top 10 bestsellers. Doctrines of demons, a lot of times. Not all the time. Praise God, not all the time. But you look at it and you go, that's health and wealth gospel. That's the latest psychological theories. That's that guy that pastors in San Antonio. That's a, and you just go down the road and you go, this isn't true. Where does it come from? And you know what? The, the same Christianese false doctrine that sells and deceives whole populations of churches and the same thing that teenagers on Granbury High School campus believe when they're shooting up, sleeping with their girlfriend. It, it's all the same. It's a false worldview, a false belief, false doctrine that finds its origin in Satan himself. And that all comes from him. You understand? It all comes from him, ultimately. Yeah, Dave. It is. There it is, right there. You're right. That's right. That's right. And and Christian science and religious science and all sorts of other religions. Bill. Yeah. It does. That's well said. A couple ones and we'll quit here. He opposes righteousness in Acts 13. Um, we see that there. And then interestingly, this is one I didn't think of. I went, oh, yeah. He sows tares amongst the wheat. Do you remember that parable? Who does the wheat represent? Believers. Okay. What's that? Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Thank you. Wes says the righteous authors. Where do the tares come from? Where do unbelievers mingling amongst believers, pretending to be believers, wanting others to think they're believers, where does that come from? It all goes back there. Because he aggressively opposes the truth. Okay? Well, we got a few more. And uh, so just... That's right. That is. That's true. And, and, uh, and uh, that's right. Okay, so put a comma there in your notes, and uh, we'll come back next time and, and Lord willing, conclude our, our little mini-series on Satan. Okay, let's pray.